And they all forsook him and fled. They all abandoned him. I want you to just think about that for a few moments as we begin our service this morning. They all forsook him. They, they utterly left. And they ran for their lives. This is the moment perhaps all of us would identify with as the disciples' greatest failure in following their Lord. And probably some of you would identify it with what would come only a few short verses later when Simon Peter, one of Jesus' three closest friends, stood before a servant girl and denied that she even knew that man, Jesus of Nazareth. They all forsook him. They all abandoned him and fled. Now I just note for one, that one powerful testimony to the truth of Scripture is that it paints in stark colors for us not only the disciples' greatest successes, but their greatest failures. Because honestly, if you were writing your own autobiography, how long would you linger on the events of your life that shame you the most, even to this day? How many of those events are lurking in your own mind, known only to you, known only to you or perhaps a very small handful of others, and still to this day cause you to blush when you think about that failure, about how you acted in that particular moment? How often are we to dwell on those, to introduce those into our conversation, to paint them for everyone to see? And yet here, in this inspired gospel record, we see the disciples' greatest failures painted in the starkest of colors. They all, no exception, they all abandoned him and fled. Very stark, isn't it? Especially when the strong church tradition is that Peter himself was the source for this gospel record that Peter himself would have been recounting to John Mark, the author of this gospel, his most shameful events. Failure. And that's why this morning we're simply going to title the message, The Disciples' Failure, because there's really no other way to depict it. This was shameful failure. Last time we were here in the Gospel of Mark, two Sundays ago, I titled the message, Fully Human, Fully Holy, to try to depict Jesus as he, is account, as he is recounted here in the Gospel of Mark as being fully human, made from the same stuff that you and I are dealing with deep emotional distress and difficulty and crying out on his face to God, God, deliver me from this hour. We identify with him. I thought this week, if I were to title it in the same way, I would just say, fully human. Because when we look at these disciples, we see in their shameful failure that they were fully human, 
even if they weren't fully holy like our Savior was. You see, it's easy when we look at these examples of the disciples' failings, and as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark and see how often they missed the point and they stumbled in their own ignorance and they, and they, and they would have led us, if we were Jesus, to full exasperation and irritation, we, we sometimes, I think, can tend to chuckle at them. Oh, there's Peter, James, and John. It's the three stooges reincarnated, right? There's the keystone cops, the 12 of them klutzing around, never getting it. Ha, ha, ha. And we're all in on the joke at their expense. But you know, in reality, when we really look in the mirror, there's no joke. Because they're us. And we're them. And frankly, I was forced to confront myself this week as I was preparing for this message and think, Peter, you'd have done the same thing. Because how do you know that? Because look at all the ways you fail now. Look at all the blunders you make now. Look at sometimes your overconfidence. Look at how often you sometimes seem to be sleeping on duty. Look at how often you focus on self-preservation rather than sacrificial love. And then tell me that if you had been in their shoes, your failure would have been any less shameful than theirs. And so this morning when I talk about the disciples' failure from this wonderful passage, so many layers to these verses, I want all of us to look in the mirror this morning and say, where, where would I have been in that same kind of shameful moment? I want to look at three different aspects of this failure for us this morning. First, I want to look at the place of this failure, and we'll focus here on uh, uh, verse 43 for, through verse 52. And then I want to go backward. I want to look at the path to this failure. What led up, what anticipated this failure in their lives and our own failures in our own lives? And then I want to look finally, and I hope encouragingly, at the preparation in failure. The preparation in Failure. Let's look first of all at what I'm going to call the place of failure. And if you have your Bibles this morning, as I always like to encourage you, whether that's in, in a hard copy or, or, or on your phone or other device, I would encourage you to look at Mark chapter 14, and let's start at verse 43. Last time we were in this passage, we took a look through verse 42 focusing especially on Jesus in the garden and his sorrow and sadness in that moment, his struggle, a holy man against what was coming when he would become a sin offering for all of mankind. And we saw his submission to the will of his Father, not, not my will, but your will be done. The victory that he won in now emerging on the other side. Rise up, he says in verse 42, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Now he's ready. He has won the victory. And he's ready to go confidently into the hour of his greatest distress. And we pick it up in verse 43. And immediately, remember Mark loves that word. His events are ones of action. Immediately, while he yet spake, just while he was speaking, cometh Judas one of the twelve, one of his disciples. You remember Judas left the upper room 
and that Last Supper. He went out to make ready the betrayal, to make ready the arrest of Jesus. And with him a great multitude with swords and staves, or billy clubs, think sticks, clubs like the temple guard would have. And notice this, they were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And so there would have been here Roman soldiers, and there would have been temple guards, those who were responsible for guarding, providing security around the temple complex. So you'd have Romans, Gentiles, and you would have had Jews, people from the religious sect and the leaders of the Jewish religion. A great multitude, we hear, is coming. And again, at the time now, would have probably been sometime around midnight. It would have been late. And so they would have been coming with lanterns, and you could have just imagined the bright lights coming your way. You can only imagine the noise that this great crowd would have been making as they were walking to Jesus. In fact, when Jesus said, Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand, he might, he might have said that because they could all hear him. There's a big crowd coming. Yep. That's the one that's betraying me. Let's go. They're here. And he that betrayed him, look at verse 44, had given them a token or a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. Now, a couple questions may come to your mind. A kiss? What is this? Well, in Eastern cultures, you can imagine, it would have been very normal and expected to give a friendly kiss to a friend. You've seen people give a kiss on both cheeks as a sign of greeting. It would have been something along those lines. Now, you say, well, why a sign? Well, who's Judas bringing? He's bringing Roman guards, and he's bringing temple, uh, temple uh, security detail. Now, it was dark. It was at night. They had little lanterns. They would have been concerned that Jesus would have slipped away and they wouldn't have recognized him. Who knew him? Who knew him enough even in the dark? Judas did. And so Judas said, hey guys, just to make sure he doesn't get away, or who knows, Simon Peter stands up and says, hey guys, I'm Jesus. And Jesus slips out the back door of the garden. Judas says, I'll show you who he is. The one that I go up, and kiss. That same as he, take him and lead him away safely. Quite the figure of speech, huh? Lead him away safely? Safely to what? To torture and death. Wow. Keep on going. He goes straightway to him. And as soon as he was come, it says, he goes straightway or immediately to him and saith, Master, Master. This is the word rabbi. Teacher, teacher and kissed him. Now this word in the Greek, and kissed him, is an intensified word. We understand. It is one that means he was fervently kissing him. This was not like a, just a quick, hey master, good to see you. This was like holding him, perhaps embracing him, and pretending like he was deeply honored by Judas, just to make sure those soldiers didn't miss. Now can you imagine what this would have done to Jesus' heart? one that he had spent years with, now coming him to betray him, to be tortured and killed, and he has the gall to come up into him and say, oh, teacher, and kiss him like his best friend. How did Jesus respond? Well, we see 
from the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus said this. He said, friend, friend, would those words have escaped your mouth? Friend, wherefore art thou come? Why are you come? Wow. If those words couldn't penetrate Judas's heart, I don't know what else could have. And they laid their hands on him, verse 46 says, and took him. Now look at verse 47. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now I think most of us maybe, or some of us at least know who this was. It was, who else? Peter. We learn from the book of John. It was Peter who took that sword. And I heard recounted one, one quip of a pastor that I, I thought was pretty funny. He said that Peter was either really good with a sword or really bad. He was either really good because he could cut off the lobe of the ear, or he was really bad because he couldn't hit a head. Okay? I tend to think he was either really bad or this servant was pretty good at dodging. Because I think Peter was either going for his neck to slit it off or to slice him right down. And this guy uh, was fortunate to escape with probably just his earlobe. Lost. Well, actually, it wasn't lost. We see from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus healed his ear right there on the spot. Now, that was actually a great blessing of Jesus, because if he hadn't done that, there might have been four crosses at Calvary that day. Um, Peter was able to get off scot-free for his somewhat impetuous actions. Now, just notice again, when you think about Peter, and you think about a man denying Jesus and saying, I don't even know him in front of a servant girl, make sure you don't forget about him taking a sword and trying to chop some guy's head off with it in front of a massive crowd. When we mock or belittle them for their cowardice, Peter says, well, did you see me? I was the one ready to take on a hundred guys. I was the one ready to go single-handedly even when it was to my great, great dishonor and discredit. We just need to keep these things balanced. Peter was willing to grab the sword and go to war. Jesus was the one who said, enough. We don't fight like that. Alexander McLaren, the great British preacher, said this, something that we should keep in mind. He said, when the church takes sword in hand, it usually shows that it does not know how to wield it, and as often as not has struck the wrong man. We would be wise before we take the sword of violence, perhaps the sword in certain cases of political machinations and deception, we don't know how to wield it. And we often as not strike the wrong man. So here Jesus' arrest betrayed with the traitor's kiss of Judas. The action of Peter taking the sword and wielding it suddenly leads to abandonment. Notice what Jesus says in verse 48. Jesus answered and said to them, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not. Now why is he saying this to them? He's not being hostile or bitter. He's exposing their hypocrisy. You're coming out against me as some great threat with this great crowd with swords and sticks like I'm some dangerous criminal you have to apprehend. Well, why didn't you do it in the daytime then when I was teaching? Well, why didn't they do it in the daytime 
Remember, we looked er earlier in the Gospel of Mark. They said, oh, we can't take him, arrest him on the Passover. Why? Why? It's going to be a riot. These hypocrites. Absolute hypocrites. And Jesus exposes it. You didn't take me then when I was teaching openly and publicly. If I were some great threat, you could have done it then. No, but notice what Jesus comforts himself with. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus had won that victory. He knew what the scriptures said about the sacrifice that he needed to make for the sins of mankind. And he embraced his part in the process. And now we're to the place of failure. Look at verse 50. And they all forsook him and fled. That confident boast of Peter there taking that sword and going to work now is replaced with fear. Suddenly they are focused on their own self-preservation and every single one of them flees. Will you look with me at verse 51? How many of you, when you came to this passage, be honest, said, I, I sure hope Pastor Peter talks about that guy who ran away naked. I sure hope he does. I've had questions about that for years. Will you please answer them? Okay. Verse 51. And there followed him a certain young man. Notice he's, no, he's not named. Having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man, men, those soldiers or those temple guard, laid hold on him. They grabbed him. Oh, here's another one. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. In biblical terms, we say this is pulling a Joseph. Okay? Leave the garment behind and head for the hills. You say, who on earth is this guy and why does he show up? Well, the first answer is, I don't know and you don't either. Okay? Because if the Bible wanted us to know exactly who it was, it would have given us a name. Um, is there a reasonable guess? Yes, there's a reasonable guess. Reasonable guess is that it's Mark himself. Now, here's why it's at least a reasonable guess. One, because it might have been intentional that Mark didn't give his name, kind of giving a wink-wink to the readers. John does the same thing when he talks about himself in his gospel. He doesn't, he doesn't name himself. He says the one whom Jesus loved or, or something like that. There's, there's another reason. Actually, we know in, from the book of Acts that the church was meeting in an upper room in Mark's house or his family's house, his mom's house. So there's, there's, there's some reason to believe that Jesus actually, the Last Supper, might have been in that upper room of Mark's family's house. And so it wouldn't be difficult to connect the dots to say a young man here, Mark, knows that Jesus is meeting there. Perhaps the soldiers even went to Mark's house first because where did Judas leave Jesus? There. And so Mark learns about it. You say, why is he wearing this linen cloth? Well, these were likely his PJs. I mean, these were, seriously, I mean, you're at midnight. This might have very well been a linen cloth, almost like a bed sheet or some kind of light garment that you would have slept in at night. And he goes off to explore like young men do and stick their nose in and say, well, I, I need to see the action. And then he gets there and suddenly he's like, uh-oh, whoops, now I'm in potential danger. And he leaves and, and very uncomfortably escapes back to his family house. I think that's probably the most likely explanation, but again, that's only speculation. So what's the point? Why is he putting it in there? Everyone's leaving Jesus. Everyone's scared. Everyone's abandoning him. He has no comfort in this moment. He is entirely alone. This was the place of failure. 
But what we need to look at next is how we got here. Not just the place of their failure, but the path to their failure. And for this, we need to go back a little bit in the narrative. And you've probably noticed as we've been going through this chapter, we've kind of been looking at more uh, layers. We looked at Jesus last week in the garden, and now we're circling back and we're going to look at the disciples in the garden. In fact, we need to go back even more than that, because if you look with me at verse 27, Jesus says to them, before this moment even comes, he says, all ye shall be offended. All of you will stumble or be tripped up or trapped because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. And notice what Peter says in verse 29. But Peter said unto him, although all shall be offended, yet will not I. Everyone else might get trapped in this, but Jesus, not me. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, before the rooster signals twice that the day is here, you will deny me three times, thrice, three different times you'll deny that you knew me. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all, every one of them was united in saying, We would never let you down. We would never get tripped up over our identification, our association with you. You know, the path to failure started, at least in part with them, with their self-confidence their self-confidence. These guys were sincere. Do you think they were lying when they said, when Peter said, I, I would die for you tonight. I'll never deny you. No, they weren't. They were entirely sincere. That's actually what they felt at the time. And that's the problem. Could, if I would just say it like this, never base your spiritual stability on how you feel in the present. Never. Never base your spiritual stability on how you feel in the present. Because he that trusts his own heart, Scripture says, is a what? A fool. How you and I feel in the moment is not a reliable indicator of where I actually stand. In fact, we know this because in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us this, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Do you think you're standing? Do you feel stable in your spiritual life? Do you feel secure? Watch out. That's what the Bible says. Watch out. These guys were so confident in their own stability, in their own security. In fact, this isn't just them. And it's not just us in a spiritual sense. Recently, in this, in this trial that I just had, there were some really significant human errors at this coal-fired power plant that were being litigated and the jury was deciding. And, and, and our side hired an expert who is, who is an expert in, in, in human error, in why people make mistakes. And it's fascinating. It was fascinating for me to learn from this man about why people make mistakes. And one of the things I learned from him is that one of the most dangerous things is what you think you know but don't actually know. 
what you think you know. Because our mind has a very interesting way of working. It takes little data pieces and puts them together and then fills in all the gaps and thinks, I know, I know everything. But no, it's actually just your own human mind. You think you know, but you actually don't know. And that's the worst part. Because you're going to make a mistake when you think you know something just because of the way your mind has put things together and you actually don't know what you think. This is a simply human phenomenon. And it's so true spiritually. How often have maybe we thought to ourselves, well, this person fell in that area. I, I could never do, I would never do that. I, I would never make that. Uh, 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 uh. Don't go there. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Now, why is that? Again, it is so incredibly human. Why? Because in the present, how I'm feeling does not take into account how I will be feeling in the future under a totally different set of circumstances. Let me try to explain it to you this way. Imagine you're speaking to a cup of water and you're saying, hey, water, you know, later tonight, you're going to be vaporizing up and you're going to be going up into the atmosphere. Ha, ah, no! I'm very secure in my condensate. I could never do such a thing. Okay, well then put it under a boiling, put it in a boiling pot. And what's going to happen to the water? It's going to start evaporating. Hey, Mr. Water, tonight you're going to get as hard as a rock and you're going to be icy cold. Oh, uh, no, I'm sitting at room temperature. Well, put you in the freezer. And then what will happen? You'll freeze. You see, we sit here in our present circumstances feeling secure and saying, I'm stable. And God says, uh-uh, tonight actually I know you're going into the freezer. And then what's going to happen? Oh, I would never. Beware. Beware. You see, the reality for us, friends, is that really all of us are like toothpaste tubes. I was talking about this with a coworker once. We were reflecting on in a, in a, when you're in trial, in a three-and-a-half-week trial, who you are is going to come out for the jury. You can't hide it for three-and-a-half weeks when you're under stress. If you're a jerk, you're ultimately going to be a, a jerk in front of the jury, and they're not going to like it. And it's the same thing with all of us. You're like a toothpaste tube. When you get squeezed by pressure, what's inside you is going to come out. Who you are is going to reveal itself. You say, well, yeah, I acted like that, but I was under a lot of stress. Yeah, it's who you are. It's who I am. We're just like a toothpaste tube. And for these disciples, they thought, no, that could never come out like that. No, Jesus said, it's going to. Their self-confidence was part of their path to failure. Beware. Beware. Notice also, notice where they were in the garden. Verse 32, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he takes with him Peter and James and John, and he goes off a little bit more, and falls down in his face, and is praying, and he comes back, and what does he find? Verse 37, And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Peter, are you sleeping? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Couldn't you sit up with me for an hour and watch? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, or, or is willing, but the flesh is weak. And say, what's going on here? They were sleeping on duty. Jesus told them, 
Guys, stay up and watch and pray. And they fell asleep. Now, again, we need to step back and see how human this is. Really, seriously. We can kind of make fun of them. For <laughs> There you go, sleeping on duty. But again, Luke actually tells us why they were sleeping. Does anyone remember why they were sleeping? Their eyes were heavy. That describes what they were doing, why, why they were struggling. They, yeah, their eyes were heavy. Luke tells us why they were sleeping. They were sleeping for sorrow. Does that put their failure into a different light for you? They were sleeping because they were so sad. Now, I want you to think back to what they'd heard that night. They were sitting there in the upper room after this triumphant week, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, identifying himself as the Messiah, great crowds following him. And then they get into the upper room, and what does Jesus tell them? Hey, boys, one of you is going to betray me. And their world was shattered, exploded. No way. Can't, no, not me, certainly. They, they had no idea it was Judas. And then Judas gets up and leaves the room. And then Jesus tells them, this bread of the Passover that I'm breaking right now, it's my body and I'm breaking it and I'm breaking is being broken for you. And then this cup right here, this is my blood and, and it's being shed for you. And then he looks at him and he says, and, and guess what? All of you are going to abandon me tonight. All of you. Every single one of you. No, Jesus, not me. No, couldn't be. And now they go into the garden and Jesus is wrestling and Jesus with, with loud crying and tears. And those three disciples are utterly sorrowful, heartbroken. How do you respond to very natural emotional currents? How many of you have faced great tragedy or great anxiety and you have been utterly bone tired? You've known what it is to sleep a deep sleep. They slept for sorrow. I just want to say this. Let's cut them a little bit of a break in the sense that I, what would I have done? Where would I have been if I had dealt with this kind of emotional turmoil and stress in that moment? My eyes probably would have been a little heavy too. And in fact, Jesus recognizes that when he says to them, he says, the spirit truly is ready. What is he saying? He said, Peter, you weren't lying when you said you, you, you could die for me. You weren't lying. Your spirit was ready for that. But what was weak? Your flesh. Now, I will tell you, I don't think Jesus is talking about your, your unrenewed human flesh in a theological standpoint. Sometimes when the word flesh is used in the Bible, like, like, like you're walking after the flesh, it's talking about the, the, the part of your sin nature that's stamped on your human personality. It's the bad, unrenewed part of you that knows what's right and still wants to do wrong. I don't think Jesus is talking about that kind of flesh here. I think he's saying this, your spirit is ready and willing, but your human frame is weak. Your emotions, your will, your mind, your body, your, the stuff of your humanity is weak. That's why you're sleeping, because you're sad. I just love the tenderness of Jesus here. He says, guys, I know why. You want to do what's right. And yet what's holding you back is your own human weakness. And then how many of us would say, yep, Jesus, you know how often I've been there. Jesus, you know how often I've wanted to do the right thing. And then you know 
You know my human. You know my human failings. You know my emotions sometimes get way out of whack and lead me down the wrong path. You know my mind gets confused and starts going the wrong way. You know. How often, friends, speaking of just watching and praying, have we known we needed to get up and start the day by getting into the Word of God in prayer and instead in our human weakness we hit snooze again and again and again? That's us. That's me. The flesh is weak. And these guys, in their self-confidence, and when they were sleeping, when they needed to be physically and spiritually alert, this was the path to failure. And then finally, they're waiting to be arrested. We see their own self-preservation come out. Probably caused by discouragement. Probably caused by fear. Probably caused by the fight or flight reaction that every single one of us has as a natural biological response to these kinds of environments. Suddenly, perhaps hundreds of soldiers are around them. There are bright lights. There are shouts. They see Jesus grabbed under arrest and they lose their minds and they're gone. Again, how entirely natural is this? What would I have done? What would you have done? Under that kind of stress, under that kind of difficulty. You see, their path to failure was shameful, but it was oh so human, and it was oh so natural. And we all should look at our own paths to failure in our own lives, where our own self-confidence, relying on our own feelings in the moment, looking at our own natural human failings that prevent us from being spiritually alert and prepared when we need to be, our own sense of self-preservation that can lead to discouragement and slinking away when the moment calls for us to be there. It's all part of a path to failure. The place of failure, the path to failure. And finally, let's close by looking at the preparation in failure. The preparation in failure. Here's the thing that I was just blown away by when I was getting ready for this message. This message really is not so much one about failure. This message is really about the Savior's response to failure. And this is why I hope that as all of us look in the mirror this morning and recognize how much these guys look like us, the most encouraging thing is, is how Jesus reacts to failure. Here's the first thing. The first thing is that Jesus knew their failure was going to come. He predicted it. Again, back to verse 27. Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Jesus knew them better than they knew themselves. Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus said, you guys are going to run away tonight. And they said, if I died with you, I wouldn't run away. And Jesus says, really? He knew them better than they knew themselves. And can I say this? Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. I was at a football game recently, and there was an advertisement up. Perhaps you've seen this advertising campaign. He gets us. Have you seen that? He gets us. And it's speaking of Jesus. And whatever you think of how that ad campaign works or the symbols or images they, 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 they use, what a true statement. He gets us. He understands you more than you understand yourself. 
And I find that very encouraging, actually. I find it encouraging that our Savior who, who forgave my sin is the one who in the periods of my greatest shameful failure knew that it was coming. He knows me more than I know myself. He warned them, in fact. We read in, in Luke 22 that Jesus says in that upper room, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. I have prayed for you specifically, Peter, that your faith fail not. I have prayed for thee. Jesus knows our failure, and he is praying, he is advocating for us even before our failure occurs. But not only that, I want you to see not only that Jesus knew it was coming, but that Jesus was there in the middle of it. Jesus was there in the middle of their failure. Well, on their path to failure, Jesus is in the garden. He's coming to them once and twice and saying, hey guys, wake up. You got to be watching and praying here, lest what? You enter into temptation, into your place of failure. Guys, wake up! Now, there's two things here that I think should just really encourage us. The first thing here is that Jesus says, Guys, I know your flesh is weak, I know your spirit is ready. How much would I have tended in that moment to say, you guys are just a bunch of idiots? In fact, I wonder whether you even love me at all. You're really going to leave me like this? You can't possibly love me and fail me this badly. Isn't that a human reaction? We go from looking at the failure to assigning a motive. It must be because. Not Jesus. Jesus says, guys, I know, I know you want to do the right thing. And I know you're being held back by your very natural human failings right now. Your flesh is weak. Do you know how greatly, great it would be for our relationships if we did the exact same thing to those who hurt us? Do you know how powerful it would be in our marriages, in our family relationships, in our church relationships, if we had the grace when we are failed most horrifically by the one we love, if we're able to say to them, you know what, I know you want to do the right thing. And I know there are natural human failings. I know your flesh is weak in ways maybe that I'll never understand. But I'm going to give you the grace that Jesus gives. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. How often do we instead go the way of the accuser of the brethren by thinking we know motives and we know heart and we know them? You couldn't have loved me if you'd done that. No, friend. Jesus gives the grace in our failings to know us perfectly. He is a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He gets us in the hour of your greatest failing. And I hope that's an encouragement to you because if you come this morning feeling like a failure spiritually, your Savior is the one who says, I understand. I get you. Yep, I know. What an encouraging thing. But notice also that he's the one who in the middle of that failure is the one saying, hey guys, come to the right side. Wake up. Pray. 
I'm reminded of what Scripture says in, in the book of Hebrew, sorry, 1 Corinthians 10. He says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you, who will not allow you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Think about this, friends. Think about you on the path to failure and Jesus is walking alongside you and saying there's an off-ramp. You can get off the freeway. You don't need to finish and go all the way down the path. Watch and pray. What a wonderful thing it is that we have a sympathetic Savior who on our path to failure is saying, come on, there's an off-ramp. You don't need to go there. But perhaps most encouragingly to me, and where we'll close this morning, is not only did Jesus know them better than they knew themselves, not only was he right there with them on their path to failure, he was right there assuring them of their path to restoration. And if you didn't see this before, maybe you'll see it now. Look with me at verse 27 again. Jesus said, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But notice this. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. What did he tell them before they failed? You're going to fail. And then what's going to happen? I'm going to rise again and I'm going to go before you and we're all going to meet up again. I will go before you into Galilee. Think about that for a minute. Think about what Jesus knew of them and think about what he was offering them in his resurrection power to say, boys, you're going to fail miserably, but I'm going to still be there for you. And I'm going to be going before you to bring me back, to bring you back to a full relationship with me. This isn't the end, boys. Your failure isn't the end. And then think about what Jesus does in the moments of your greatest failure. He says, hey, I'm still going before you. Yeah, you failed. Now get up. I've got resurrection power for you. I've got a sinless sacrifice to forgive you completely of that most shameful failure and to put you on the road back to a full relationship with me. You see, the reality of the gospel is that Jesus in his blood and in his sacrifice and in his resurrection life is always willing to bring you back from your greatest failure. And in fact, he's been preparing the ground for it the whole time. So my encouragement to you is don't give up. Did you fail this week? Well, I did too. Get up. He's gone before you. And he's prepared the way for your restoration. Will you fail this week? Yeah, we all will. So what happens when you fail? Get up. Accept his forgiveness. And say, you're restoring me back to yourself again. Philippians 1 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's the one coming alongside you, on, on your, at your place of failure, and saying, come on. My resurrection power, my forgiveness is available for you. Let's get back on the path, going the right way. And there's one more thing. Not only is Jesus encouraging you to get back on that path to relationship with him, he's also giving you the resurrection power 
not to fail in the same way next time. You see what's beautiful about this? When these guys were standing and then running at the sight of those officers, how did they respond when they were getting beaten for the cause of Christ? How did they respond when they were getting martyred? As church tradition says, 10 of these 11 guys other than John got martyred, got killed for their faith. How did they respond then? With great boldness, with great courage, with great loyalty. You see, Jesus doesn't come into your failure to say, that's okay, just keep on failing again and again and again and again and again. No, Jesus comes into your failing to say, you know what, I've got resurrection power for you to walk in victory next time. And then you fail next time and he says, you know what, get back up, because there's still victory ahead for you. There's still a path to glory. There's a path that's my way, not the devil's way. You see, this is a story of failure. The toothpaste tube got squeezed for these guys, and what came out was shameful, just like so often what comes out of my life and your life is shameful. And yet this morning, I hope that if you failed, if, since you failed this week, and will fail next week, that you'll see the sympathetic Savior who is with you on that path and encouraging you to find an off-ramp who is at that place of failure encouraging you back to the place of relationship and is preparing you even in your failings for great future victories. All of us will experience failure. Let's take this example and get back on the path toward victory.